trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Oh boy, oh boy. 2023 is drawing to a close. I'm really trying hard not to, you know, cast some ominous, you know, aspersions out here about 2024. But I got to say, I'm not finding a lot of people who are looking forward to next year and feeling like, you know, this is going to be a banner year for us. (laughs) And I think the election is probably at the top of a lot of people's minds as far as, you know, well, uh, what could possibly go wrong? Gee, I don't know. What happened last time uh, we had uh, a questionable election? I'm sorry, I mean the most secure election in American history. Wink, wink. Anyway, welcome to the show. We've got a lot to talk about today. I want to thank my sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com, tmcpnation.com. That is the modern conservative podcast. It's my friend John Harvey, who, by the way, also is the owner of Ironsight Brewing Company. If you're a coffee drinker, if you're a coffee aficionado, this is one you should look at. It's a subscription coffee service. We're talking 72 hours from the roaster to your coffee pot. And uh, John is a man who is known for insisting on quality. Go to Ironsite BC. That's Iron, S-I-G-H-T, B-C. And check it out for yourself. IronsightBC.com. Also, QuiltonSew.com. All right, let's, uh, let's dive right in. When it comes to current events, this can be a real source of anxiety for a lot of us, myself included. And that's why I love the way that James Howard Kunstler approaches uh, current events. Not only does he have, uh, he has a great way with words. The man can spin a phrase in a very memorable way, but he also has, I think, an uncanny grasp of what is going on that uh, doesn't require a lot of spin to uh, keep it, you know, in, in your eyesight. It's, it's, it's really good. He's very good at connecting the dots. And this is how he talks about uh, so ends an era. He starts with a quote from Victor Davis Hanson. The old politics of right versus left and Republicans opposed to Democrats have now given way to a new existential struggle. Americans must choose between civilization or its destroyers. Ooh, it certainly feels that way. Uh, By the way, just as an aside, I know uh, just uh, last night in my home state of Idaho, uh, a federal judge, I think it was a federal judge, Anyway, uh, a judge set aside uh, a bill, or a law rather, that uh, prohibits genital mutilation surgery on underage kids. In other words, this transgender sex change surgery, uh, a judge has said, well, you know, we got to allow this, you know, because freedom or because it's some kind of cultural imperative. Yeah. Which one is civilization? Which one is its destroyers? I'm going to go with the destroyers are the ones who are obsessed with mutilating kids in permanent ways. But... Enough of that. Let's go back to James Howard Kunstler's article. He says, Now that you, the lucky ones, are beyond your steaming platters of pancakes and mighty rashers of bacon, and perhaps even a dram or two of grog in your coffee, and you clawed your way through the bales of presents, Merry Christmas to all, and here's something else to think about this morning. He says, You may have noticed that our country, formerly a republic of sovereign individuals, has become one great big racketeering operation run by a mafia-like cabal with Marxist characteristics, or at least Marxist pretenses. That is, It seeks to profit by every avenue of dishonesty and coercion under the guise of rescuing the oppressed and marginalized from their alleged tormentors. Apparently, half the country likes it that way. 
Now, he says much of the on-the-ground action in this degenerate enterprise is produced by various hustles. Now, a hustle is a particularly low-grade, insultingly obvious racket, such as Black Lives Matter, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and trans women, in other words, men in women's sports. Some of the profit in any hustle is plain money-grubbing, of course, but there's also an emotional payoff. Hustlers and racketeers are often sadists, so the gratification derived from snookering the credulous, the feelings of power, uh, gets amplified by the extra thrill of seeing the credulous suffer pain, humiliation, and personal ruin. That's what the actual oppressors actually do. Categorically, anyone who operates a racket or a hustle is some sort of psychopath, a person with no moral or ethical guardrails. Hustles are based on the belief that it's possible to get something for nothing, a notion at odds with everything known about the unforgiving laws of physics and also the principles of human relations in this universe. Even the unconditional love of a mother for her child is based on something. The amazing generative act of creating new life achieved through the travail of birth. Have you noticed, by the way, that the birth of human children is lately among the most denigrated acts on the American social landscape? So the flap over Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, is an instructive case in the governing psychopathies of the day. He says, I wish I'd been a roach on the tray of uh, the Pettit Fours and Biscotti uh, brought into Harvard's overseer's boardroom when they met to consider the blowback from Ms. Gay's unfortunate remarks in Congress, followed by revelations of her career-long plagiarisms. The acrid odor of self-conscious corruption in the room must have, been, must have overwhelmed even the bouquet of Tanzanian Peaberry coffee a brew, and not of the, a few of the board members must have reached for the sherry decanter as their shame mounted, and the ancient radiators hissed, and their lame rationalization started bouncing off the wainscoted walls. Apparently, Miss Gay did not miss an opportunity to cut and paste somebody else's compositions into everything she published, going back to her own student years in the 1990s. She even poached another writer's acknowledgement page. This is apart from the self-reinforcing substance of her published research justifying the necessity for DEI activism for which she's become first an avatar and now a goat. The dirty secret of this perturbation, and the whole Harvard board knows it, is that Claudine Gay's career has been about nothing but careerism, and that this is also true of so many on the faculty and administration at Harvard, and surely at every other self-styled elite school from Charles River to Palo Alto that's joined in the DEI. I won't say the word he says, but it's, you know, mind mess up. Anyway, it's all one big status acquisition hustle. The seeking of hierarchical privilege by any means necessary, including especially deceit, the politics of middle school girls. Thus, you see on display the juvenility of high elite higher ed and its use of the worst impulses that prevail in social media, stoking envy, hatred, avarice, and vengeance as the currency for career advancement. Claudine Gay was notorious earlier as the Dean of Faculty of Arts and Sciences for wrecking the careers of faculty members like Ronald Sullivan, Stephanie Robinson, and Roland G. Fryer, Jr. She's the one who refused to play the game like middle school girls. Or they were the ones who refused to play the game and like, like middle school girls. She had no mercy. The mental pain endured by the Harvard bigwigs must be excruciating, says James Howard Kunstler. And of course, they have themselves to blame because they walked right into the woke hustle with their eyes wide shut. They bargained away their dignity and the university's honor for mere brownie points in a fool's game called win big prizes pretending to care about your fellow man. 
The cognitive dissonance must be like little nuclear reactor meltdowns burning through the lobes of their brains. They've run out of a safe space to play victim in. The world sees them for the coddled, the coddled rather, malicious fakes they are. Cutting Claudine Gay loose is the unavoidable play now, or Harvard will be stung by so many lawsuits from students previously punished for academic mischief that all the alumni lawfare attorneys in the cosmos standing snout to tail will not be able to staunch the hemorrhaging of the school's endowment and then the fire sale of its chattels to satisfy the aggrieved plaintiff's pain and suffering. The Harvard board is just trying to ride out the holidays. Their prized participation trophy is coming off the mantelpiece. There really is no other way. Now, he says, stand by and watch the rats rat each other out. And so ends the era of pretending about everything. Like I say, Kunstler has a way with words. And, and I, I don't see anything in here that, that he's gotten incorrect. He's, he's right on the money. And isn't this kind of the, the measure of our culture right now? Being a good person, I mean like actually living as a good person, a decent person, requires effort. And it's not so much the effort of, yeah, you know, getting your brand out there so people can see what a good person you are. That's the pretending part. That's what dominates social media. That's having the right avatar, the right flag in your avatar that, that shows, look, I support the current thing. That's the pretending he's talking about. Pretending to care about this group or pretending to care about that group. No, being a decent person means living up to your values even when it is difficult to do so, even when doing so sometimes requires you to stand alone against the world. That's the hard part. And that's why not everybody wants to be a decent person because the real effort involved is difficult. And the toughest part of it is learning to bring yourself into line with what you profess to believe. Trust me, I work on this every day and I still don't get it right most days. I just won't give up. But the point here is very simple. It's easy to pretend that you're a good person. It's easy to signal the things that you are against, which obviously will, will show others that you are a good person. It's much harder to actually live as a decent person, to treat others the way you would want to be treated, and to live with exactness in your convictions. Especially if those convictions require you to tell the crowd, hey, I can't go along with that. So kudos to those who are actually decent people. How do we know they're decent people? Well, they're not spending so much time looking for recognition of that fact. They're going about the hard work of actually being a decent person. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, I feel like I would be remiss if, uh, as we approach the year's end, I didn't take just a moment to uh, to tell you, the listener, how much I appreciate you taking the time to just click that play button or to tune in if you're, if you're catching this on the radio. I really appreciate it. I know there are many voices out there, and there are a lot smarter people, a lot more accomplished people that, than myself. I am, uh, I'm a simple guy trying to speak the truth as best I understand it. And I'm trying to share relevant truth without uh, sharing the kind of truth that's just going to leave you going, holy crap, we are in worse trouble than I thought. 
We live in a very interesting time. This is a time of crisis. This is this is consistent with that whole fourth turning um, crisis that builds to a crescendo. And my goodness, I, I believe the crescendo is building as we speak. I don't know what the climax of this crisis is going to look like, but I'm pretty confident it's going to test every single one of us. And I say that with the understanding that it can't be avoided. You cannot ride this out. I know that uh, right now there's a, a couple of articles I've seen in the last few weeks about uh, members of Congress and other very uh, well-to-do people are building multi-million dollar underground bunkers. They've actually hired some company out of, I believe, uh, Czechoslovakia <laughs> that uh, uh, specializes in creating these, uh, you know, doomsday bunkers for the, for the elite. It's not enough. It will not be enough. What's going to make the difference through whatever troubled times may be coming is the character of each individual. Now that, uh, I know it sounds like, oh, but you're still saying there's going to be hard times. Hey, look, that's the reality, okay? Reality is everything that remains when you wish it were otherwise. I wish it were otherwise too. But the reality is some pretty tough things have been set in motion. The good news is, though, that one thing that you and I have control over is our character. That's the thing that we have the final say on. Nobody else can say it. So focus on your character. I I like the way my friend Joe Carey used to put it. He'd say, get right with God. In a world where you can choose to be anything, choose to be kind. I don't think anybody will regret undertaking those kinds of efforts. And you may say, well, what does that do to solve the bigger problem? I'll tell you what it does to solve the bigger problem. You are offering one improved unit to the world, yourself. And when that happens, you know, even individually, when it starts to happen in such a way that more and more people realize, that's what I need to do, it does make a difference. All right, that said, let's take a little bit of a detour into something I thought you would find interesting. Uh, Have you noticed how uh, when you buy canned goods anymore, you don't really need a can opener, a lot of pull tabs? I like this, by the way, because... Frankly, not all can openers work all that great. And uh, Have you ever been somewhere going camping or something? Ah, yeah, we brought some cans of chili. Oh, well, where's your can opener? Oh, <laughs> so here we are with a knife and a rock or a hammer or a chisel trying to open the can in ways it wasn't intended to be open. All right, well, let's, let's talk about this. Art Carden, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, says people love to laugh and economists are easy targets. As Michael Munger explains, jokes can be a great teaching school. teaching tool, rather. A classic joke at the expense of the dismal scientist runs as follows. A chemist, a physicist, and an economist were stranded on a deserted island. They had a can of beans, but since they didn't have a can opener, they had to devise a way to open it. After a long but fruitless discussion between the chemist and the physicist in which they concluded pretty much everything they could do would mean losing a lot of the beans, the economist piped up. I've got it. First, assume we have a can opener. (laughs) Now, it's a jab at the economist's supposedly habitual over-reliance on unrealistic, simplifying assumptions. Sometimes the criticism is unfair because any abstraction requires us to sacrifice realism in the interest of simplicity for purposes of clarity. Perfect competition may not describe real-world markets accurately, but the model still yields powerful and important insights. Sometimes, of course, the criticism is justified. For decades, economists have concluded their research papers with policy implications, assuming that omniscient supermoral superheroes unlike anything that inhabits this planet. Or at least any legislature, palace, or courthouse will, will be the ones uh, implementing their policy descriptions. 
Assume we're governed by the Justice League isn't too far from assume we have a can opener. He says, it suddenly struck me while opening a fresh can of coffee one morning. I don't actually need a can opener that often. The coffee can is plastic, and instead of cutting it open, I simply removed a thin metallic film. No muss, no fuss, no sharp metal edges. I looked around the pantry and saw that I could open many of our canned goods with pull tabs. Now, these aren't the unattainable luxuries of families in the top quintile of the income distribution, either. While showing Joan of Arc around Walmart, Bill Preston and Ted Logan would no doubt want to highlight that even the store brand beans came with easy open pull tabs. Easy to open canned goods might look like small drops in Donald Boudreaux's prosperity pool, but changes in packaging like these have made our lives easier and safer. Boudreaux discusses, discusses a simple example, shampoo. Laying aside for a second the fact that even to have shampoo is a modern miracle, Boudreaux writes, the shampoo in your shower is in a plastic bottle. Fifty years ago, that shampoo was likely in a glass bottle. He says, I remember cutting my foot badly sometime in the early 70s on a piece of glass from a bottle of shampoo that I had dropped and broken while I was showering. Fortunately, an inexpensive antibacterial ointment and band-aids ensured the wound had no serious consequences. He says, when I was in fifth grade, I tripped while bringing groceries into the house. When I looked up, or when I got up, rather, I looked down and saw blood streaming from a fresh cut on my right wrist, thanks to one of the now-broken glass jars in the bag I was carrying. The cut wasn't very deep, and it wasn't the brush with death I feared at the time, but it was not an experience I care to repeat. And he says, it's one my kids won't likely have to, because because so much of what used to be packaged in glass jars now comes in plastic bottles. In iPencil, Leonard E. Reed quoted G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton rather, We are perishing for want of wonder, not for want of wonders. Pull tabs and plastic bottles are among the innumerable wonders free people exercising free minds in free markets bring to us every day, in exchange for progressively fewer fruits of our labors. That's why we no longer need to assume a can opener. Someday, we might not even need one. I know, it's one of those little things that until it's pointed out to you, you really don't stop and think about it. But when's the last time you picked up a can that actually required a can opener? Now, granted, there are some, you know, I think cans of tuna fish and things. But even then, you have a choice. Well, I really don't want a whole can of tuna fish. Well, that's great. We have this wonderful uh, foil pouch sealed up. It's good to last for many months. Why don't you grab that? All you have to do is just tear at the little notches and it'll open right up. I have to think that's some kind of an improvement. So I guess the the secondary lesson I take away from this is maybe I should be taking a little bit more time each day to notice and appreciate the things that make my life easier. By the way, his comment about uh, plastic shampoo bottles, that's that's really solid advice. Grocery shopping to me is a much easier thing when I notice that, okay, it's in a plastic bottle. I understand that uh, that runs contrary to the whole idea that, well, you know, plastics, don't we make that out of petroleum and, you know, fossil fuels? And, well, yes, I believe that we do. But we also recycle a lot of plastics, too. So there's that. All I know is when you drop a bottle of something, and we've all done it from time to time, it's a relief when it's a plastic one. It still might break, but at least you aren't dealing with the consequences of shards of broken glass and wondering, did I get them all? Am I going to find out, you know, when I'm out wandering in the kitchen, you know, in my bare feet? Is that when I'm going to find the sliver of glass that I missed? I'm really grateful for, for those uh, improvements. 
And I'm also grateful, too, because I'm one of those weird ducks. I like uh, kippered herring, especially smoked kippered herring. I think it's great stuff. I like sardines, too. Don't hate me. Just, you know, it's, it's a habit I picked up as a kid. But I love the fact that you don't need the little key to wind up, you know, to open up the can. Some of you will remember that. Some of you won't. Just those simple pull tabs have, have made life so much easier. And let's, uh, let's not forget, it's probably been a while since any of us cut our, uh, cut our heel on a pop top, as Jimmy Buffett put it. Remember the pull tabs from the pop cans? Ah, yes, many a kid was sent home to get a Band-Aid on their foot <laughs> for stepping on one of those. See, life is getting better in a lot of ways. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't had the chance to check out my show notes, I publish them each day that I do this program. You can find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you'd like to subscribe, I'd welcome you to subscribe. I'd also encourage you to check out another little feature that I do on a daily basis, and that is Hide in Plain Sight. This is a substack, so if you type in hide, H-Y-D-E, in plainsight.substack.com, you can check out some daily musings. It's a very short investment of time. Each episode is roughly 90 seconds long, and it's just a little simple truth bomb, something to encourage you to, to stand up and, and reach for what's best in you, regardless of what the world may be saying. Anyway, you can subscribe to that as well. I just I put that out there, and if you haven't heard of it, I would encourage you to check it out. Hideinplainsight.substack.com. There's also a link at my regular website, thebrianhideshow.com. So there was an incident in the last few weeks. Maybe you heard about this. A uh, satanic statue and altar was erected in the Iowa State House. I know. How inclusive. <laughs> How diverse. Wow. But someone took exception to it, actually tore down and decapitated the statue of Satan and uh, disrupted the altar. And it has sparked some very interesting debate about, is it appropriate to tear down satanic statues? Now, right, we tear down all kinds of other statues, anything related to the Confederacy, anything related to, well, basically normalcy in terms of uh, how, how our society came from point A to point B. The founders, oh, yes, they're generation-owned slaves. We have to tear them all down. We can't even pretend that they existed, you know. Okay. But I, I'll tell you, I have a little bit of a visceral reaction to the idea that, that uh, this is something that has to be torn down. Nonetheless, I wanted to share with you a, an insight from Brandon Smith, who says, Here's why tearing down satanic statues is perfectly acceptable in our constitutional society. He says, In recent articles I've been discussing the ways in which the political left exploits the principles of a society as a shield to destroy that society. In other words, if a nation has a certain historic regard for freedom, they will try to destroy that nation while under the protection of those freedoms. He's right. He's, at, he's, he's not wrong on this. If you point out what they're doing and try to stop them, they then argue you're violating your own principles, the same principles which they're trying to tear down. Now, it's a form of psychological warfare designed to create a catch-22. If the target population sits back, sits back rather and does nothing in the face of cultural onslaught, their heritage and their beliefs are systematically dismantled. 
If people take action to disrupt the saboteurs, they are accused of being hypocrites who don't actually value the freedoms they claim to value. However, he says, this little mind game relies on a certain false relationship. It requires that the population under attack continues to see the saboteurs as integral members of that society with the same freedoms and the same protections. They're Americans just like us, and therefore we have to treat them as merely as citizens in, a, in disagreement, even though they would like nothing better than to see our culture burn. Now, globalists and woke leftists who openly boast about their agenda to deconstruct American society or Western society and replace it with their own ideological cult, they're not simply in disagreement. They have declared war. They've been treating conservatives and patriots as the enemy for quite some time. And Smith says... While we continue to treat them as fellow citizens, that's a problem. They tried to erase all our freedoms permanently during the COVID pandemic, which they perpetuated through false information. They tried to create a government apparatus working with social media corporations for mass censorship. They tried to create punishments for people who spoke against the establishment narrative. They supported vaccine mandates that would have enslaved Americans for years to come, and they almost got what they wanted, too. Then they twisted the events of the January 6th protest and declared war on us again. They fired rubber bullets and tear gas into the crowds, got a violent response, and then acted as if the reaction was an insurrection. They've targeted our children with political and sexual indoctrination in an effort to groom them into willing servants to the woke cause. They've saturated our media from commercials to movies with an endless stream of DEI propaganda, all while claiming we are the terrorists because we refuse to spend our money on woke products. Now, he says, when someone is actively at war with you, they are no longer part of your community or tribe. They can't claim to be Americans while also planning to undermine everything that makes America what it is. When someone is working tirelessly to destroy the constitutional principles you hold dear, they don't get to use those same freedoms as a buffer against retaliation. An enemy in war is meant to be defeated. The rights are secondary to this goal. Okay, now this is one of the places where I think I may be differing with, uh, with Brandon Smith. He makes a lot of sense, but I don't necessarily agree that if, if your rights are secondary to this goal, at some point I worry you're going to have to shed your morality. And without your moral compass, without moral clarity, how are you any different than what it is you're fighting? In other words, are you willing to become what you're fighting in order to fight it? That's pretty much what the anti-fascists have become. People who march around insisting everybody chant in unison with them under threat of violence. Sounds pretty fascist to me, just as an example. Now, Brandon says, again, this is not a, pol a political disagreement. This is not a friendly debate among countrymen with the best of intentions. This is not a cultural speed bump on the way to mutual benefit. This division, he says, is irreparable. It cannot be salvaged. This is about survival. This is war. That's why he says, I smiled when I read the story of Michael Cassidy, a former U.S. Navy fighter pilot who destroyed a satanic statue of Baphomet on display at the Iowa State Capitol building. The political left is in an uproar on social media and as expected, they argue this incident is proof that conservatives are authoritarians hell-bent on dictatorship. They say the statue has a constitutional right to be there if any other religious symbols are allowed to be there. But does this really matter to the situation? Brandon Smith says, my personal feelings about organized religion are complicated, but I recognize the replacement tactics being used by the political left 
to undermine the West, and they've clearly been targeting Christianity for many years. The satanic statue in Iowa may or may not represent Satanism and evil to the people who paid to have it placed in the Capitol, but it does represent their ongoing effort to wear down American foundations using any tool they can find. So here are the reasons why what Cassidy did is absolutely acceptable under our current political conditions, even in the face of constitutional questions. Number one, he asks, do we really live in a constitutional society anymore? Or does the First Amendment only apply when it's convenient to leftists? As mentioned above, the political left and their allies have been working overtime to destroy freedom of speech through collusion between governments, corporate media, and big tech. Mass censorship was the norm during COVID, and leftists defended it, defended it vigorously. These people are in no position to use the First Amendment as a tentpole for their ideological games. Sorry, he says, but that ship has sailed. They've lost the privilege of wrapping themselves in the flag. Number two, the political left has been aggressively attempting to demolish historic monuments and statues of founding fathers in an effort to erase our, correct, our connections to the past. In 2021, they even removed a nearly 200-year-old statue of Thomas Jefferson from the New York City Hall building on the grounds that it was a symbol of racism. Well, what goes around comes around. They tear down our statues, now we tear down their statues. Number three, Michael Cassidy is not a government representative, just as most of us are not government representatives. Leftists seem to operate under the false assumption that constitutional rules are meant to restrict public behavior, but they're not. They are meant to restrict the government. The Iowa state government didn't tear that satanic statue down, unlike the New York City government that removed Thomas Jefferson, rather. It was just a man, a regular citizen. This is not a First Amendment issue because Michael Cassidy is not bound by the First Amendment in this situation. Now, he might be guilty of vandalism under the law, just like the thousands of woke activists across the country are guilty of vandalism for destroying monuments and government buildings, but that's all. This is not a legal battle, he says. This is a war. Number four, most conservatives are not even arguing the matter on First Amendment grounds. Instead, they argue the matter on moral grounds. Is it right to allow satanic symbols to stand in our institutions of law and institutions of heritage? Symbols that represent moral relativism, narcissism, chaos, and psychopathy. Is it, is it right to look the other way while a subversive activist movement works to demolish everything we hold dear? Number five, does every belief system or ideology deserve a place of equality within our society? Every death cult? Every terrorist or criminal philosophy, are they all entitled to statues and monuments on public property? Or is there a line? Should there be statues of Hitler, Stalin, and Mao in the halls of Congress? Should there be a Pol Pot bust on the floor of the Senate? Should Charles Manson get his face on Mount Rushmore because of the First Amendment? There is such a thing as standards, but leftists think that when it comes to their ideological goals, there are no standards. He says, never before in the history of the U.S. has there been a time when a statue of Baphomet in a state government building would have been treated as acceptable, or even under, even under constitutional law. Suddenly in the past decade, we're supposed to treat these destructive symbols as equal to other religions and give them places of reverence on public grounds? He says, no, I think not. I've got a link to his article. I'm going to come back and finish up with a couple of his other observations. What do you think? You can also drop a comment to me. Go to uh, thebrianhydeshow.com, click on the show notes, and leave a message. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. This is our final segment. Again, I'm sharing this article from Brandon Smith. This is from alt-market.us. Why tearing down satanic statues is perfectly acceptable in our constitutional society. So the sixth point he makes here is that Satanists like to play games with legal categorization when it suits them. When they want to argue for their presence in public schools, they say, well, we're not a religion. We're merely a philosophical club. But when they want First Amendment protections, then they claim they are a religion. Now, if these groups are going to refuse to identify what they are in finality, then he says they should be restricted from access to public institutions until they make up their minds and the courts can establish a fair precedence. He is right. They are trying to have it both ways. So that's that's a fair point. Number seven, he says, we have to ask ourselves what really defines freedom. Does freedom mean being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, without being subject to scrutiny or skepticism? Does freedom extend to hedonism at the expense of morality, truth, responsibility, and order? Because this is what the political left is demanding, and it's leading to the self-immolation of civilization. Brandon Smith says, I think we have allowed them to indulge themselves for far too long, to the point that they've become arrogant and presume themselves untouchable. They laugh at us because we play by a certain set of rules which they see no reason to abide. They engage in a battle of ideas and facts while they go scorched earth, rigging the fight using central government and corporate power to their advantage. And he says, maybe we stop playing these by these rules. Maybe every time they try to tear down our statues and symbols, we tear down their symbols until there's nothing left of them. Maybe we remove the enemy that has declared war on us and then continue on with life as we did before. Would the populace really miss the antics of woke activists or would they applaud if these people were shipped off to an island somewhere? If they hate the cultural roots of this country so much, they can always leave. They choose not to and instead scheme to upend everything we used, we used to stand for. So no, he says, I shed no tears for the progressives or the Satanists, almost the same thing at this point, or the globalists when their mocking statues are cut in half. After years of trespasses, they're finally facing some blowback. As the leftists like to say, freedom of speech does not guarantee freedom from consequences. And I'll admit, I'm, I'm torn because he makes some very relevant points here. And yet there, there is still something to me that uh, is, is troubling about this tit-for-tat. Well, you tear down our statue, we tear down your statue. They hurt one of your guys, you send one of their guys to the morgue. I mean, it's the, right out of the untouchables. I'm not sure if that eye-for-an-eye mentality is something that I can wholeheartedly embrace. Although, I do see the point that Brandon Smith is making, that you know the, the left is cleverly using our own scruples and our own morals against us. But the bigger question on my mind is, how can we turn loose of those morals? How can we abandon those morals and still say that we're defending them? So I, you know, if it sounds wishy-washy, then I guess I'm wishy-washy. I just, I, I have a problem with, uh, with playing by the same rules as wicked people want to play by. I'm convinced that, uh, that there is, there is a better way. What that is though, I'm not quite sure. I'm open to, to suggestions. I'm open to criticism if that's, that's what it takes. If I need to be set straight on this, but I thought it was a very worthwhile read. So that's why I'm sharing it for you. Now, a couple things I want to direct your attention to. I have two articles that I'll share a couple of excerpts here. Um, competition is treated like a dirty word these days. 
Got a great article here from uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. This is by Gary M. Gallus. Is competition the enemy of cooperation? And to, to make his case, he uses Frederick Bastiat in his uh, Economic Harmonies. There's a chapter called Competition, Chapter 10, and Bastiat talks about how there is no word in all the vocabulary of political economy that has so aroused the angry denunciations of the modern reformers as the word competition. And yet competition always should accompany cooperation in a free society. That's F.A. Harper who said, the choice of where and with whom to cooperate and where and with whom to compete must ever face you and me. So just a couple of the high points from Gary Gallus' article, competition is freedom, which is the absence of oppression. He talks about disagreeing with some of the reformers. Competitive freedom expands options for all. Competition transforms self-interest into harmony. Now, this is, again, borrowing from the words of Bastiat. Harmony in a world that includes evil and error, antagonism or harmony. I mean, it's a pretty lengthy article, but I'll just cut right to the chase. Bastiat summarizes the relationship between liberty and competition, connected by the same by the fulcrum of uh, private property rights that was his theme in Chapter 10. If they leave me my liberty... Competition also remains. If they wrest it from me, I become only their slave. Yeah, doesn't get much more direct than that. And that's worth remembering today as the essence of attacks on both liberty and competition has continued to be the violation of others' property rights, enslaving people to others' dictates. There is a lot of meat on that bone, but I would invite you to sit down and start gnawing away at it. It is some remarkable insight Again, this will be included in my show notes for December 27th, 2023. All right, last one. I don't know if you have taken a gander at the Netflix movie, Leave the World Behind. I'm going to give you a spoiler here. There's a, there's a complete shutdown of the internet. It's kind of an apocalyptic tale. And I've heard more than a few people suggest this is predictive programming, as is another Netflix movie about civil war, as is... Uh, there, there are just there are a number of different uh, things that are being introduced to us in which we're kind of being told, well, you know, maybe this is a case of, um, you know, they're, they're telling us what they're going to do. Or it's a case of they would never do that because they would never be stupid enough to tell us. I don't know about that, but I would encourage you to read Bert Olivier's article about uh, the movie Leave the World Behind. And he says, you know, it's it's a... It's a disaster movie of sorts, of sorts, because the real disaster, which the narrative hints at in an open-ended manner, is only just beginning to play out when the movie ends, with a young girl starting to watch what seems like the last episode of her favorite TV series, Friends, in a neighbor's underground bunker stocked with prepper supplies. Now, this itself is a significant scene. Rosie is the young daughter of a white couple, the Sanfords, who escapes into sitcom fantasy, which makes her happy at the very moment that it appears that everyone else is completely helpless in the face of an unfolding series of events too vast to grasp adequately, let alone addressed by effective intervention. So, ostensibly, he says it is a disaster film, but several things strongly suggest it's much more than that. I don't know if we are being, you know, predictively programmed to accept, you know, that this is going to be the black swan event that's going to come, a shutdown of the internet or a shutdown of the uh, the power grid or whatever it may be. I do know that there are a lot of people trying to sow fear and, and particularly people 
who used fear so effectively during the COVID pandemic. I think I should probably point out, too, that this particular Netflix movie, Leave the World Behind, the executive producers are Barack and Michelle Obama. Make of that what you will, but uh, I think there's some pretty credible evidence right now that uh, Joe Biden is little more than a sock puppet for Obama or uh, a team of, of advisors who are running things from behind the scenes. Pretty crazy stuff. But it looks like uh, we are probably going to see some kind of event that is going to shake us to our very foundation. And by shake us to our foundation, I mean it's going to tempt whoever is in power to lock it down even harder than before. That's going to leave a choice resting right on our shoulders for people like you and me. Am I going to go along with it? Because the risk is too great? Am I going to defy it? Am I going to just pretend to go along, but secretly in my heart be, I'm not believing this. I got my fingers crossed while I took the oath. It's probably going to be a little more complicated than that. But I do believe that the choice is going to arrive on every single one of our doorsteps, if it hasn't already. And I hearken to the words of uh, Kenneth W. Royce, who wrote under the uh, pseudonym Boston Tea Party. He says, this is the kind of thing where you have to make your choice before that choice is, is forced upon you. Will I pass? Will I play? Because he says, if you wait too long, it's going to be too late to grow a backbone when that moment arrives. So how's a person supposed to make such momentous decisions, right? That's asking a lot of us. How are we supposed to choose when, when there's so much at stake? And I agree. It's, it's a little bit overwhelming when you consider the magnitude of what is approaching and the choices that we have to make. But I'm also going to suggest that you have a conscience for a reason. It's part of your original manufacturer's equipment. God gave it to you. And it's probably a good thing to use. I think a lot of people, the first time they really get to meet their conscience is going to be as they are exiting this life. And it's going to be a really unpleasant and awkward meeting because they're strangers. People who know their conscience and are on good terms with their conscience are going to find it a much more peaceful affair. This is The Brian Hyde Show.